Tonight I'm going to continue a series of talks that I started last week on what's called the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, ordinarily we'll sit and meditate first, but because I'm going to talk about some of the practices, I figured I'd talk about them first and then we can meditate here in a little bit. Um, last week I talked about the benefits of embodied awareness or mindfulness of body, which is the first foundation of mindfulness. I'm going to keep tonight talking about mindfulness of body. Um, the four foundations of mindfulness are the Buddha's 2600 year old teachings and instructions on mindfulness. So it's kind of cool. He discovered mindfulness as really a uh, experiential practice. He just kind of fell into it through using other meditative practices of the day. Um, and the Four Foundations is actually, it's a discourse that he gave called the Satipatthana Sutta. And it's a discourse that's very comprehensive on how people should practice mindfulness. He called mindfulness the direct path to liberation. He says, monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent for acquiring the true method for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. And so this sounds pretty good to me. He says, this is for the purpose of surmounting sorrow and lamentation, for disappearing stress and discontent. And from a Buddhist perspective, mindfulness is much more than a tool or technique that we use to reduce stress. It's very popular as a practice right now in our Western world. Um, and one of the aims of mindfulness is definitely in the realm of stress reduction, like creating spaciousness in our mind where we can non-reactively observe our thoughts, like kind of giving you that moment of pause. If you've ever been tripping about some shit and you're like, wait a second, I'm tripping, relax, take a breath. I want to be able to choose how I respond right now. Mindfulness really helps to give us more moments of clarity, more inner spaciousness, less reactivity, the more that we practice. Um, so it definitely is for the purpose of stress reduction, but this other aim that the Buddha really emphasized and really the, his whole re reason for teaching was that mindfulness helps us to develop liberating insight, um, allowing us to look into how we suffer uh, in our mind and how to uproot that suffering. Right? We've all had patterns of uh, reactive patterns of the same mental distress of worrying, fixation, when we get fixed on things or narrow-minded, um, stuck in the same like mental habits of black and white thinking. Right? So mindfulness helps us to really start to track those mental habits so we can see what causes them, what feeds them, and how we can stop engaging in those same patterns. We're really looking at how like craving and clinging our resistance to our life experiences perpetuate suffering. And so one way to say this is mindfulness supports insight. I like to call it, it's like having a subway map. So the more that you ride the thought train over and over and over again, not only do you learn how to know when you're on the thought train and how to get off, but you also learn the map. You get to know where it's going and why it's going there and what triggered it and what you can do to help go somewhere else if you want to go somewhere else. 
you know and I like to just give examples a lot of times especially around relationships like all of the ways that we like will trip about an ex right or think I'm lonely and I'm never gonna find the right partner or I don't like the partner I have right now or whatever it may be right these are often areas of tripping or stress that we find ourselves in a lot and mindfulness helps us to look into these patterns and to start to kind of identify what our mind does for example when I feel lonely oh well shit when I feel lonely this is what I do is my mind does this thing it runs this software program the Buddha called these sankaras and sankaras are psychological habits they're like software programs that the mind runs and it does that because we have conditioning that we have a thing called perception and perceptions informed through our experiences so you have an experience and you learn from that experience and so the next time you have a similar experience you learn to react the same way you did before and sometimes uh, that is to our benefit like when we're driving a car you can get in a car and you know how to drive it and a lot of times when you have an experience uh, you're using old information so we have misperception we misperceive we have distorted perceptions we think we're right when we're really wrong and so mindfulness helps us to deliver this insight to look inside to the mind to look at the ways that it suffers to start to update uh, our perception and so insight, I like the definition, is the capacity to gain an accurate and deep intuitive understanding of a person, place, thing, or experience. This capacity to gain an accurate and deep intuitive understanding. The Buddha calls this sampajanya, clear comprehension, an ability to see clearly. Like I said, perception's often inaccurate. It sees things from how we've been conditioned to see things, not always from how they actually are. Uh, an example the Buddha gives over and over again in the discourses is someone walking up on a stick and thinking it's a snake. You know, like that's a very simple example of misperception. So there's nothing moralistic about this. And the Buddha is very careful to stay away from you are bad because you don't see things the right way. He's not interested in ultimate truth, capital T truth, that there's a way of seeing things that you don't. Um, there are just ways that we misperceive and we need to really with mindfulness the more moments I show up here with curiosity and interest the more insight I naturally develop the more I look closely at the experience instead of just acting based on old information or reacting tonight I'm gonna talk about establishing embodied awareness last time I talked about the benefits I'm kind of a rebellious person, so I'm usually one of these people that you need to tell me why I'm doing something before I do it. So if you weren't here last week, it's fine. You're just going to miss that piece of why we're doing what we're doing tonight. <laughs> um, I'm going to review a little bit, uh, but you can also go back. We have a podcast and listen if you're interested to some of the benefits of embodied awareness. Uh, a couple of these that are important is embodied awareness or mindfulness of the body helps to develop relaxation. Um, you have an, in your autonomic nervous system, you have two kind of responses that are uh, usually trying to balance each other, your sympathetic nervous system and your parasympathetic. And when you get really stressed out, you go into your sympathetic nervous system, which can start to produce 
uh, that fight, flight, freeze response. We may call that just like anxiety or stress. When you practice embodied awareness, even things like yoga or movement, dance, whatever, mindfulness of the body, <laughs> you start to learn how to tell your body, to tell your mind that it's safe and that it can start to relax. So one of the really easy benefits of meditation, so easy that it's almost easy to overlook, is just the more that you sit and practice mindfulness, the more uh, relaxation you'll feel. There's a famous study where people practice mindfulness 20 minutes a day for 100 days and they decrease the cortisol levels in their bloodstream by 50%. You know, so just through mindfulness of body, living more in the body and less kind of caught up in the quickness and the speed of the mind helps us to regulate our nervous system and feel rela relaxation. Um, the second benefit is that it helps us to expand our window of tolerance for discomfort, whether it's physical or emotional. When we feel discomfort, there's two types of discomfort. There's the actual feeling, and then there's our reaction to the feeling. So when I'm sitting here, if I feel pain in my knee, there's going to be the actual physical sensation that I call pain, and then there's going to be my mind not liking that pain. <laughs> And so without mindfulness, we wouldn't really know that these things are different. It's just, oh, my knee hurts, right? But with mindfulness, you can actually look into the pain and see that it's sensation, it's temperature, it's pressure, it moves, it ebbs and flows, it has kind of a wave to it. Mindfulness helps us to get uh, really rid of that second layer of pain, which is the mental attitude that usually is conditioned around discomfort. When I'm uncomfortable, my mind agonizes over discomfort. The agony creates suffering. Pain is inevitable, suffering's optional. And so we're really trying to work on that agonizing around discomfort. Expanding our window of tolerance, which is something Daniel Siegel studied and talked a lot about. And then the last is sensory clarity. Sensory clarity, by bringing awareness to the body, especially longer term practice, you just have a little bit more access to your emotional map. Your body can help put you in touch with quicker how you feel emotionally before the emotion gets so activated that we are off in a loop running the emotional software program. So you may notice like a tensing up in the body in the core of your chest. It's like, oh, that's some fear, right? And so I can bring my awareness to the fear and relax around it and work with it a little bit quicker so we call this sensory clarity or having a map for emotion, bodily emotions. For establishing embodied awareness, uh, I want to kick it old school tonight and go back to these 2600 year old teachings. I like to blend usually a lot of like uh, psychology, sometimes pop psychology and pop neuroscience because I don't myself know much about neuroscience other than what I read and hear about. Um, but also my therapeutic background, I like to bring in a lot of like psychotherapy dynamics and then blend those with the Buddhist teachings. Um, tonight I wanted to give his instructions for developing mindfulness of the body, especially looking at the breath. Um, he said, and how, monks, does she in regard to the body abide contemplating the body? Here, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, she sits down, 
having folded her legs crosswise, set her body erect and established mindfulness in front of her. Mindful she breathes in, mindful she breathes out. The first part of this instruction is very important. He says, here, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, she sits down. The Buddha talks a lot throughout the discourses on mindfulness about the importance of this metaphor of seclusion, of getting away from the village or the town, which is really a metaphor of getting away from our bullshit. And so a big part of practicing mindfulness is setting an intention, as the Buddha says, to put aside our desire and discontent for the world. When we're practicing mindfulness, we're not trying to figure out the plan. We're not trying to rehash the old memory or the resentment. To some degree, we have to have a boundary with our mind, knowing that it's impossible to get rid of the thinking mind. So this is really hard because there's no way we can stop thinking. Not going to happen, just like you can't stop sounds or your breath or your body from feeling. You can't stop your brain from generating thoughts. But you can set limits, and you can learn how to tell your mind, I'm going to not think about the future or the past. Uh, One of the phrases that I like to use a lot in meditation practice at the beginning is that there's nowhere to go, nothing to do, and no one to be right now. Sometimes I'll just repeat that phrase a few times. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to be. That's a very relaxing Uh, kind of mantra that we can use to give ourselves permission to not have to do anything, to not have to be anywhere, to not have to be even in our experience in a right or wrong way. That's one of the hardest things for me to work with in meditation is this attitude that there's a right way to meditate. As soon as we get into that attitude that there's a right way to meditate, we're not meditating right. (laughs) Because it's all about allowing you to experience whatever your experience without any judgment. That non-identification with the mind. So learning to have this seclusion also means that we have to introduce kind of symbolically, I call them the elements of time and space into our daily routine. This is huge for living a life that's centered around mindfulness. Is the Buddha didn't teach mindfulness as an uh, efficiency exercise or productivity exercise. He introduced mindfulness as a holistic way of living. That we have to learn how to retreat from really a society and culture that doesn't retreat from productivity. We are really conditioned through this task-centric way of living, a conceptual way of living, a mind that likes to think about plans and ideas and people, places, and things, a mind that's fascinated with itself. And so having this time to retreat just simply means that something that we can do that's very basic is to have a daily meditation practice or come here once or twice a week or go somewhere else once or twice a week, you know, or incorporate yoga or, you know, finding ways to go on longer retreat, a weekend retreat or a day retreat. The mind has this uh, circuit, the nervous system is like an electrical unit. And without grounding it, it just keeps spinning. And so when we have this to-do energy, which is what we call sankara, inclinative power in the mind, the mind's inclination, the mind is inclined to do. That's its job. It does two things. 
Your mind makes meaning out of everything, and it does. It problem solves. And so we're really up against a mind that is always trying to know what this experience is to make sense out of it and to do something with it. To have that permission to tell your mind there's nowhere to go and nothing to do and no one to be, to form your life in some way around more stillness, more moments of quiet throughout the day. It could take three minutes, five minutes. You know, it really helps to um, create that seclusion. When we lack time and space, we actually become less productive anyway. So if we're going to kind of argue <laughs> with mindfulness for productivity, uh, I would say that's true in a lot of ways because there's a, actually kind of a famous study, they call it the mind trap by Greenberg, Rayner, and Mirren. And they said that in their study, the participants were required to use three hypothetical jars to obtain a specific amount of water. So there's kind of an amount of water and you have to fill it up to an equal amount in these three jars. And the initial problems they were given with the water and how much was measured in each jar, the water solution was solvable by a very complex formula. So you had to do a lot of math to try to figure out how to equal the water in the jars. But in later problems, the water solution could be solved by an additional much simpler formula. The study found that the people who had no mindfulness practice were blinded by previous experiences and therefore had high levels of cognitive rigidity in approaching new problems, right? So they kept trying to use the old solution to solve a new problem. You ever find yourself in that situation? So when we get so burnt on our stress and we can't relax or we can't take the time out, we think we're more productive, but we're actually using more inefficient ways of trying to handle sometimes simple problems. Um, another benefit of this seclusion or setting some boundaries and limits with your mind is this is probably really what the Buddha was looking at, is that when you have that space or distance, when you give yourself time and space throughout the day, insights or solutions to problems naturally arise. Uh, when we get distance, clarity becomes possible. So the way I like to say this is that many problems are solved not by forcing a solution, but by being with the problem long enough for the solution to naturally arise. Right? When we have a problem or when we experience discomfort in meditation, your mind goes to try to figure it out to get rid of it. And what it does is it creates more stress in approaching the problem. But when you can learn to be with a problem long enough, the solutions naturally arise. Another way of saying this is when we take time out from solving the problem and we sit with the discomfort of not knowing, the solution usually arises. And this is something that's been very true for me longer term in my meditation practice is that I have a lot of creativity flow from practicing mindfulness. Um, there's a story I heard this weekend. I did an EMDR training, which is a form of therapy. And the lady that, I think it's a lady, I don't know, lady or man, that started EMDR, Francine Shapiro, figured it out by walking through a park. 
And so she was just like chilling, walking through a park. And she noticed, she had a moment of mindfulness that her eyes were swinging back and forth from left to right, which is a big part of this form of therapy. It activates your REM so to process memories. And so she was noticing that her eyes were swinging back and she was having a lot of access to memory and it desensitized her to very distressing things that she was thinking about. And so it was really in this moment of mindfulness where she wasn't trying to figure anything new out or do anything fun or creative or try to enhance her professional career that she came into this whole method of therapy that now is like one of the, uh, I think it's the number one approved therapy for treating post-traumatic stress disorder. So insight naturally arises when we're able to take time out from our problems and sit usually with the discomfort of not knowing, sitting with ourselves. And that's very against the stream, right? Like the thing that I want to do when I'm worried about some shit is figure it out. The last thing I want to do when I'm worried about some shit is sit down and not think about it. <laughs> so we are up against this you know, mind that wants to do, but we can, I like this kind of recovery fa- phrase, they talk a lot about acting our way into right thinking. Our behavior can train our mind. So if we just sit down and do it anyway, because it's a part of our routine, right? the mind will follow suit. Um, insights naturally arise when we get distance. Uh, another way I like to say this is that it's hard to see the mess we're in when we're sitting in the middle of it. If we can get distance from our stress, we get clarity. If you can sit when you're feeling stress and not get lost in the obsession about it for even a few minutes, uh, you can get more clarity. So where we start and what we're going to do tonight to start, I'm going to talk just a moment about mindfulness of breathing. This is the next part of uh, the Buddha's instruction. So he starts and says, and how monks does he in regard to the body abide contemplating the body? Here gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, he sits down having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect and established mindfulness in front of him. Mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. So the Buddha was pretty frank and clear about his instructions. Mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. So the first instruction is really about finding a location in your body. He says here, establish mindfulness in front of him, which the common, uh, the people that, the Buddhist scholars that study the suttas think that this means mindfulness in front of him could mean the nostrils, or it could mean finding an area where you notice your breath at your mouth or your chest or your stomach. So the first instruction is really about finding a location in your body where you feel your breath most easily. This could be your nostrils, chest, abdomen, or some combination. It doesn't matter. There's no right way. It's just about taking some time to feel and find a place to connect with the breath. And then to try to track a full cycle of breathing. He says, mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. So what he's saying here is just there's try to focus and feel one length of your in-breath and one length of your out-breath. And the way, the reason why I like this instruction is that you can always just feel one length of your in-breath and one length of your out-breath. The goal is to not stay there the whole time. Because if we have that goal, we're going to fail every time we meditate. 
I've never had an entire session or sitting period of meditation where I've been connected with my breath the entire time, 100% of the time. You know, so we have that kind of I can do it mentality if we can look at this as I can always come back to just feel one cycle of breathing, to track that, to feel the breath as you breathe in and feel the breath as you breathe out. So it starts simple, find a location and try to feel it a couple times. The next instruction, he says, breathing in long, she knows, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, she knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, she knows, I breathe in short. Breathing out short, she knows, I breathe out short. Once you start to connect with your breath, it's very common for your mind to start to relax. So after you do this even a few times, you find a location in your body where you feel your breath, you feel a couple in-breaths, out-breath, your mind wanders, that's cool, notice it, come back. You do that a few times, you'll notice that your mind will start to get a little bit more relaxed and sometimes it will overshoot and you'll get really tired, you'll have a dull mind and you'll start to kind of check out. Um, very common, if that's actually happening, that can be a good sign in early meditation that your mind is starting to settle. But it's settling so much that you're wanting to kind of lose presence and drift into dreaminess or sleepiness. So this is the second step. Breathing in long, he knows I breathe in long. Breathing in short, he knows I breathe in short and so on and so forth. This means to try to deepen your interest in the breath. So now you have a location, you've got a couple breaths in and out. Now you're trying to really stay interested in something that your mind has no fucking interest in. <laughs> the mind totally doesn't care about the breath, right? And that's kind of the point, is that the mind would rather think about fantasies or the future, the past, or about how I'm doing in the meditation or where I'm going or why I'm doing what I'm doing anyway. So deepening our interest means that we can ask ourselves very simply. Sometimes I'll just be like, am I breathing? And I'll be like, yeah, okay, I'm breathing, right? That's interest. That's a moment of interest. Sometimes people use other uh, techniques. It doesn't matter, again. Sometimes people will count their breath. One on the inhalation, two on the exhalation, up to 10, and back down to one. And each time in the beginning when they're really working on this focused attention, their mind wanders. They just notice that, and those thinking, thinking, thinking. Let the thought go, and they come back to the counting, back at one. One, two and so on and so forth. People will use labeling. If counting is too technical and you're like, don't bring numbers and math into this shit, I just wanna <laughs> try to meditate. Sometimes people say the word in when they breathe in and out as they breathe out. Um, a very simple way to bring interest is if you start to just focus on your breath and you get really tired, you're gonna start to lean on your experience a little bit. Your body is gonna start to get kinda, you know, real relaxed. So you just, can just come back to your posture this is very popular in Zen practice. There's a lot of emphasis on posture. And so when the mind wanders or, you know, there's really no instructions in Zen, but I'll give them some instructions anyway. When the mind wanders, you really focus back on your posture. You come back to that feeling of being in the body and you start back at that point. So here's the technical benefit. When you increase your interest, breathing in long, I know I'm breathing in long, breathing in short, I know I'm breathing in short. When you increase your interest, that interest creates energy. So you can actually overcome that sleepiness. 
And this is really beneficial because when you start getting into more practice, you'll notice that when you come up against disturbances, emotional, mental, physical, one of the defense mechanisms of our mind is to check out by becoming tired. It's an avoidance strategy that the mind naturally does. It's a very genius one. Uh, and it's not our fault. Like, it's actually kind of good. Is if I feel overwhelmed, I get tired, right? But when we're trying to really look at some of the shortcomings of the mind or we're really trying to work with physical or emotional discomfort and we keep just kind of like, you know, forget this, I'm just going to go to sleep, take a nap, uh, it can become problematic to just avoid, 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 avoid. Um, I rarely get sleepy anymore when I meditate. Definitely happens sometimes. If I'm really tired, sometimes just lay down, take a nap. So sleepiness isn't a problem. But you can work with it is the, um, really what I'm trying to say here is that through interest, you create activity. And activity focused on the breath is not restless activity of the mind. It's this activity of stability. And the more you have that energy, the more you start to focus and build that momentum. The next uh, instructions, they train thus. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. They train thus. I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. They train thus. I shall breathe in calming the body. They train thus. I shall breathe out calming the body. Just as a skilled turner or their apprentice when making a long turn knows I make a long turn or when making a short turn knows I make a short turn, so too breathing in long they know I breathe in long and so on and so forth. So a turner is like, a, I think it's like a woodworker, but you can just think of like an Uber driver making a short turn, making a long turn. So what uh, the Buddha is saying here is to experience the whole body as you breathe in and breathe out and to calm the body when you breathe in and breathe out. We can do this in many ways. When you practice in this kind of, uh, first of all, none of what I'm saying is important in a lot of ways. But it is important if you want to look at the Buddhist teachings and how he taught to build focused attention during practice. But it will happen organically, usually. So after we find a location, we feel a couple breaths, we maybe feel a little bit relaxed, we try to build interest, then what you're trying to do is you're trying to expand your awareness to more of your experience. So you're trying to experience more of your body. A way that I like to say this simply is that when you're breathing in, you just try to feel all of the sensations of your body. As you breathe out, you try to feel all of the sensations. So you may feel temperature as you breathe in, or there's, you'll notice there's always like little tingling sensations and feelings in your body, or there may be discomfort in areas of the body. So as you breathe in and breathe out, include those sensations in your awareness as you breathe in and breathe out. Um, there's some very technical ways that other meditation traditions have worked with this. There's a guy named Goinka who studied with a meditation master named Uba Kin. Goinka, you can still sit these retreats for free in the U.S. and in India. Uh, and Goinka retreats are very miserable. <laughs> They're very intense technical forms of Vipassana where you have awareness the size of like your thumbnail and you scan through your body. They call it body scanning. So you scan through your body. As you breathe in and breathe out, you try to bring your awareness through each subtle area of your body uh, to try to just have more intimacy with the physical sense of the body. And I'll talk about why here in a second. 
there's another form of doing this practice where you can breathe in and breathe out and notice a different body part. So I may breathe in feeling my right arm and breathe out feeling my right arm and breathe in feeling my left arm and breathe out feeling my left arm. I know this sounds ridiculous, but I'll talk about why it's important here in a second. Um, and then calming bodily activity. If you find tension in your body, go to the tension, stay with the tension. And once you've stayed with the tension for a period of time, you can invite the tension to relax. You don't want to go to tension during meditation and just tell it to relax because it can create mental agitation. But if you have tension during meditation and you go to it and you stay with it and you actually kind of welcome it and you're like, okay, the tension can stay and you're with it and you're with it and you're with it, then you can breathe into it and breathe out of it. Um, you may be saying biologically that's not possible. You can't breathe into a tension in your arm, right? Uh, it doesn't matter. It's about connecting your breath with this uh, mental sense of ease and the mind and the body are connected. So if you can bring awareness to tension, uh, you can stay with the tension, you can breathe. What happens is your body relaxes around that pain and it stops conditioning that kind of tightness. So why this is important, just real quick, and we'll do some practice. This type of breathing awareness brought into the body helps us to develop insight. So this is really the process where we learn how to have sensory clarity, which I was talking about earlier, like with emotion, for example. Um, the more that I spend time breathing and knowing my body and feeling my body, the more moments of awareness I'm training for that to show up when I leave the meditation cushion and I'm out in the world. So you're actually training your attention to show up more by sitting and practicing it. And it's a very trippy thing because the mind is just another capacity that we can train. Just like you can practice a sport and get good at it or a language, you can practice awareness. More moments of awareness repeated over time means that we're present more often, which means you learn from experience more frequently if you're present for it more often. So if I'm present and I'm here and I'm fully aware, I take in the experience, I process the experience, and I learn from the experience. That's how you develop insight. Insight's something you can't teach, so it gets really abstract to talk about it, but this is the whole purpose of mindfulness is for the development of liberating insight. If you practice mindfulness, insight will naturally arise. Uh, it's not something that you can do. It's something that happens as a result of practicing. I like to say that Dharma, the Buddhist teaching, is not systems and structures, but it's the insight that comes from using systems and structures skillfully. So if you can bring awareness into the body, the body has so much information about what it means to be human. One of the liberating insights that the Buddha is aiming us to look at is impermanence. So we can start to look at our identification with the body. A simple way of looking at this in our culture is how we treat aging. We treat aging like a disease, but aging is actually a reality. So we have uh, this youthful culture, we have a culture of forgetting the elderly, you know, a culture of trying to argue with 
you know, conditions of the body breaking down. We identify with our bodies and we think, I think, my body should always be working. And so if I have pain, it's not, it's out of order. If it's sick, it's out of order. If it's aging, it's out of order. <laughs> but that is the order of the world. The body does do those things and will always. And so mindfulness really helps us to practice deep, intuitive acceptance of these aspects of our physical form. One of the practices we may talk about some other time is looking at the anatomical parts of the body, like looking at what is your body. It's made up of bone and pus and blood and sinews. And we idealize bodies. We objectify bodies, too. And we say some bodies are attractive and some bodies aren't attractive. And we made this big delusional uh, you know, social condition around acceptable bodies and unacceptable bodies. And so this is so much suffering on a grand scale. And it all starts with realizing the body is what it really is. The Buddha encouraged us to look at the body like you would a bag of rice or millet, he said, <laughs> is to just look at it for its parts. What is it? And to not identify with it either. This means that through non-identifying with the body, we can actually have compassion for it, meaning I am not in control fully of this thing. I can influence it. I should take care of it, but I'm not in control. And so I don't have to identify or get lost in uh, thinking my body should be some way than it actually is. Because when we argue with reality, we suffer. As we learn in each moment to bring awareness to the body, you're updating your reality. This is how it is. Oh, there's discomfort. This is how it is. Oh, the body's painful and hungry. Oh, shit, that's how it is. You know, the body uh, has organic intelligence to it. It wants to be felt and known, right? When we live disconnected from our bodies, we create so much stress, emotional disturbance. So what I want to do now is to do a couple practices, but feel free if you need to stretch. We'll take two, three minutes, and we'll do a couple meditation practices. You can run to the bathroom, and we'll start back with the bell.